Okay, welcome. Glad you guys are here. This is week four as we study um, ancient church history part two, or the church of the Roman or the imperial age as I've called it. Uh, today, what we're going to talk about are some, this is the, we're, in the, we're back in the 300s. I'm kind of doing this categorically. I do have a little bit of an echo. Who's, who can help me? John? No. I think I'm echoing. Thank you. All right, so what we're going to talk about today are some of the major theological um, giants of the uh, 300s. So I think what we're going to try to see here is that we're kind of building upon the previous generations. I read a quote this week from, I think it was C.S. Lewis, that said, often we evangelicals are entering a conversation at 11 o'clock that started at 7. So we think that in modern Christianity or modern evangelicalism that we kind of are formulating new ideas and that's what's right. But I think what's important when we talk about the history of God's church is to understand that layer upon layer of orthodoxy and theology is building upon each other. And that's important for today. The four people I'm outlining today are kind of transitioning from the early church fathers um, who took the, there's the apostles, there's Christ, the apostles, the early church fathers. And then there's these guys that we're going to talk about. Um, and then next week, we're going to spend an entire week on Augustine or St. Augustine. You can call it whichever way you'd like. Um, and he really takes it to the next level. So you've kind of got, if you think about the greatest theologians in the history of the church, you have the Apostle Paul, St. Augustine, all the way up to um, Calvin and Luther in the Reformation. You kind of have these really giant figures. But each of those are kind of building on um, the, the uh, study of the previous generation, too. So um, these guys are kind of ushering in this period of time that Augustine is involved in. And that's what we're going to see next week. And even one of these guys is, is instrumental in Augustine's um, conversion. So the four guys we're going to talk about today are Athanasius. We talked about him a lot already when we talked about the Council of Nicaea. But I want to go into a little bit more so you guys understand him personally a little bit better. Uh, second, we're going to talk about Ambrose of Milan. Um, thirdly, Ambrose was a leader in Italy in the western part of the empire. We're going to talk about a guy named Jerome, who was a leader in both the east and the west. And then we're going to talk about um, Christostom, which I will say that wrong every time. So let's just understand that. I might just give him a different name. But his name is John, so maybe we'll just call him John. But um, I've practiced all week on how to say it, and I'm not very successful at it. Um, but he is a major player and a bishop in the east. So we have this whole dynamic here of the church in the Roman Empire, where the western part of the empire, that's where Rome is, has its kind of its um, dominance and what its, what its peculiarities are. And then we have the eastern part of the empire, and that's where its capital is at Constantinople, which in the early 300s was founded by Constantine to be the capital of the eastern side of the empire. So you kind of see this eastern-western tension. And last week we talked about these councils that kept rising up in the church, and they kept rising up over theological or Christological controversies about, who, about the nature of Jesus and his deity and his humanity. And those were mainly centered in the east, and the eastern part of the empire had relative peace compared to the western, so they kind of had time to have 
theological controversies. And the western part of the empire didn't have that because they were worried about the barbarians from the north sacking the Roman Empire and weakening their defenses on the northern and western fronts of the empire. So we kind of still see some of that tension, but these guys are influential in different parts, geographies of the empire. I think it's important for us to understand, too, is that God uses faithful people every, throughout all generations to protect his word. It's his means to do that. So he uses means, he uses people and his word um, and the spirit to help lead people unto salvation. Um, but he also uses means and people and the church um, itself to protect um, correct doctrine. So we're going to see that today too. So I hope we understand that. That's the purpose in bringing up these guys. It's not to exalt them, but it's to see God's hand in protecting his word and the truth about who he is. Uh, so that's our introduction for today. We'll look at these four giants, as I'm calling them, of the imperial age. If you could turn your Bibles to Psalm 136, we're going to read this psalm, and it has a historical reason behind it. it is actually Athanasius, the first guy we're going to talk about, was pretty much on the run back and forth in and out of exile his, most of his life after, after the Council of Nicaea. And at one time, the emperor, and his, the emperor caused, asked that his people go attack and bring Athanasius to him and send him into exile. And they were not able to. They were unsuccessful. But as they entered the church, which was actually during a worship service, um, as the guards entered in, Athanasius had his congregation sing and recite Psalm 136. They probably sang it. I will not sing it. So read along with me, Psalm 136, and then we'll pray. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who alone does great wonders, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who by understanding made the heavens, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who spread out the earth above the waters, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who made the great lights, for his steadfast love endures forever. The sun to rule over the day, for his steadfast love endures forever. The moon and stars to rule over the night, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt, for his steadfast love endures forever, and brought Israel out from among them, for his steadfast love endures forever. With a strong hand and an outstretched arm, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who divided the Red Sea in two, for his steadfast love endures forever. And made Israel pass through the midst of it, for his steadfast love endures forever. But overthrew Pharaoh and his host in the Red Sea, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who led his people through the wilderness, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who struck down great kings, for his steadfast love endures forever. And killed mighty kings, for his steadfast love endures forever. Sion, king of the Amorites, for his steadfast love endures forever. And Og, king of Bashan, for his steadfast love endures forever. And gave their land as a heritage, for his steadfast love endures forever. A heritage to Israel, his servant. His steadfast love endures forever. It is he who remembered us in our low estate, for his steadfast love endures forever. 
and rescued us from our foes, for his steadfast love endures forever. He who gives food to all flesh, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of heaven, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you, Lord, and we praise you that your steadfast love is forever. Lord, praise you that even as we recount these things in Israel's history, Lord, we can see how you've worked in our own lives, Lord, um, and that you have lovingly called us unto yourself. And Lord, we give you praise for that. Lord, we pray as we consider the history of your church, Lord, that it would increase our worship of you. Lord, that we would see you as sovereign. Lord, that we would see that you are protecting and um, um, holding your truth, Lord. Um, Lord, I praise you for raising up faithful men and women, Lord, that are concerned about um, your truth. And I thank you, Lord, that we can see that in history. Lord, I pray that we would um, be uh, increased in our gratitude as we consider these things today. May we see your hand at work. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Okay. All right, so as it has been pointed out, you have a study sheet that has like five letters, five words on it, and they're the names of the characters today. I thought that was helpful because you won't have to learn how to spell Athanasius because it's right there for you. And um, when I mispronounce Christostom over and over, which I just did, um, you'll know how to actually say it correctly because you'll have all the letters in front of you. Okay, so the first guy we're going to talk about today is Athanasius. And like I said earlier, we kind of introduced him a few weeks ago as we were talking about the Council of Nicaea. Uh, This guy, Athanasius, lived from 296 to 373 AD. Um, His first involvement in Christianity was with the monks of the desert who taught him a rigid life of discipline. And eventually, as he moved from uh, that the the desert in the monastic orders, he moved to Alexandria, and he was trained in the Alexandrian view of theology. All right, quick review. So we have, this is eastern, this is the eastern part of the empire, so let's start there. But then we talked about there's two kind of views of how um, emphasis, I guess, about Christ's deity and his humanity, and one is the Alexandrian view, and one is the Antiochian view. So we had the the big churches were Rome, Constantinople, Antioch, and Alexandria. They all had a unique role in the church of the empire. Antioch had a certain way of looking at things. And as we saw last week in the councils, a lot of the Antiochians were the ones that were pushing for a little bit more emphasis on Jesus' humanity. The Alexandrians, however, were correcting that and were concerned about Jesus' deity. So... Obviously, this is one of the things Athanasius is most concerned about. And as we saw in the Council of Nicaea, what they were trying to produce in Nicaea was something to codify Jesus' deity, that he was fully God and he was still fully man. So at this point, Athanasius is, um, he's completely involved and entrenched in this Alexandrian view of theology. Um, And at this point, there are people that come after him that are concerned about um, they're going to overemphasize Jesus' deity over his humanity. But I think in Athanasius we see a good middle ground, and that's what we see both in uh, the Nicene Creed and in the resulting creed that occurred at Constantinople as well. But prior to, so in Alexandria, though, we talked about this is the area where the Arian controversy, a man named Arius came uh, into the, onto the scene, and he was teaching that Jesus was um, not a god. 
that he was something different than God and man, kind of a middle-of-the-road um, God-man. Um, that's what he claimed about Jesus. Um, but prior to that even starting, um, Athanasius wrote a book that was called, and this is important because it details the, how important God's deity, or Jesus' deity was for him. His book was called On the Incarnation of the Word. He was talking about God, Jesus becoming God in flesh. Um, so this was the central fact of the faith in Athanasius' view, is that is the incarnation of God in Christ. And then comes on the scene Arius. Remember we talked about Arius? He has some catchy tunes describing um, that Jesus was made by God, and um, that was pretty much the um, result of the Nicene Creed to say that he wasn't created, but that he had existed from eternity past. So, Arianism comes on the, uh, onto the uh, scene, and he's very um, keen to that and sees that that's something he needs to protect. So, he's the key member who protects and leads the fight for orthodoxy at the Council of Nicaea. He worked for the bishop at the time, Bishop Alexander of Alexandria, and um, he actually wrote many of the briefs that Alexander submitted there at the council. Um, he was nicknamed the Black Dwarf, so probably darkly complected man, and also small in stature, yet mighty in understanding of orthodoxy. So when Alexander dies shortly after the Council of Nicaea, um, it's, it's a given that Athanasius is going to be promoted to the bishop of Alexandria. However, he doesn't desire that. He flees, he flees and goes to the desert and they have to go get him and reluctantly appoint him the bishop of Alexandria. So now Athanasius, the defender of orthodoxy at Nicaea, is the bishop of one of the four major churches in uh, Christendom. Uh, so it's very important that he now is the bishop. Now, as bishop, though, he kind of has to deal with... So the, the emperor at the time is Constantine. He's the one that called the Council of Nicaea. Uh, yet Constantine is constantly being... Constantine is constantly uh, being influenced by other parties, including Arians. So these Arians that were condemned by the Council of Nicaea start getting inroads into the emperor and into Constantine. And eventually, um, it gets to the point where the Arians have so much influence that Constantine demands that Athanasius be removed from being the bishop. So he sends him into exile. He actually, back and forth with other emperors, Athanasius gets sent and brought back from exile five times in his life as the bishop of Alexandria. Um, so it was this constant struggle. Um, and this was the reason the Council of Constantinople had to happen, because even though they condemned the Arian heresy at the Council of Nicaea, um, it kept coming up, um, and the church kept being divided by the Arian controversy, and hopefully at Constantinople it changed that, and it did considerably. Um, yet Athanasius, Athanasius was the person that was most noted for defending orthodoxy. And the Arians even attempted, they made up false accusations about him, and one story is they accused him of killing a, an Arian leader by the name of Arrhenius, and he actually, Arrhenius was still alive. Some people knew that. But they, they conjured up this story about Arrhenius um, being killed by Athanasius because they're trying to discredit him, right? So we wanna, not only do we want to say that we disagree with his teaching, but we want to make sure he never comes back to 
being the bishop of Alexandria. So they show up. Athanasius shows up at this hearing that's going to appoint. He's going to try to defend himself and how he's wrong. So he shows up, and he brings a specific character with him, which is the person he's reported to kill, have killed. And he starts making the arguments about why he didn't, how he knows he didn't do it. And the other people are like, no, no, we know. Here's the, here's the evidence as to why we know you did this. So at one point he finally says, well, look, I brought this guy. He's here before me. He is not dead. And they said, well, we know you cut off his hands. And they said, so he just takes his hood off first. And then he, he, um, he shows them, well, shows him one hand. They said, well, no, it was the other hand you cut off. Shows him the other hand. He has both hands. And then they, he finally jokes, and I have this written down, um, he finally jokes, um, what kind of monster do you think Arsenius is? One with three hands? And his, 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 uh, <clears throat> his rivals were not happy with this, and obviously he was acquitted. But the fact is that they were conjuring up much false uh, things about him in order to try to trap him and get him off the bishopric in uh, Alexandria. Okay, so the, ultimately... His whole life was kind of fleeing, um, or being exiled, and returning from exile. Um, he always maintained his post. They never put anybody else as the Bishop of Alexandria, though, while he was in exile. Um, he did not live. So 381 is a big date. That's when the Council of Constantinople happened, and he did not live to see that because that was the ultimate achievement of what we would call the Nicenes against the Arians because um, that's, that's where they formulated the doctrine even further. He died a few years before that. A couple things about his legacy that are important. One is his focus on orthodox teaching and that he did not want to bend um, his teaching in that way. When there was many opportunities that would be favorable for him and for his circumstances um, to bend on the teaching. He loved the people of Alexandria um, and it was his goal to make sure that Christ was preached according to the scriptures and according to how they had reported the, how they had come up with the Nicene Creed. So we can see a great example in him in his perseverance, in trials, and in biblical truth. So that's the first guy we're talking about, is Athanasius. Um, I will commend to you, there's, if you guys are not familiar with this, John Piper does an annual, kind of like Pastor Dan does, uh, an annual biographical uh, sermon about somebody at his pastor's conference, and he did an, an entire sermon on Athanasius one time. So it's really, it's really insightful and helpful. And um, I would encourage you to listen to that if you're interested in these things further. Um, the second guy we're going to talk about is Ambrose. He lived from 340 to 397. All right, class, I'm going to ask you a question. Are you ready? So he's, he becomes, he's becomes famous in Milan. Does anybody know what happened in Milan? We've talked about this. In 313, come on, home, homeschool moms know this. <laughs> the Edict of Milan, right. And that's where Constantine said that Christianity was legal. All right, so this is a center bed, the center, center bed, a centerpiece for Christianity is the area of Milan. Um, so Ambrose, actually, he became the bishop of Milan, but before he was the bishop of Milan, he was the governor. Okay, so this is interesting. So now we have a governor, somebody that rules in the state, He's the political leader of the time, becomes the bishop. How does this happen? Well, they, they call a meeting for the, uh, for the church there, and they need to appoint a new bishop. And there's much arguing about who should be the bishop. And tradition says that a young man said, how about Ambrose? How about Ambrose for bishop? 
And they, all the people started cheering and applauding it, and they decided to make Ambrose the bishop. One problem with making Ambrose the bishop was he wasn't a member of the church. <laughs> so it's really odd, but that's kind of that, things like this happen in the evolution of the Roman Catholic Church, too. You have people ri- raised to power for political purposes um, that aren't even members of the church, but it suits their uh, whatever needs there, and, um, and these guys get risen to power. So they had to, so everybody agrees that he should be the bishop, but we've got to make him a church member, which is a, it's kind of a process, uh, probably more of a process than we even have. So within eight days, he gets um, baptized, accepted into membership, and ordained as a bishop. So now he's the bishop of Milan, governor and bishop. So now we have church, we have somebody leading church and state, and that kind of becomes a pattern. Yet we don't see the dangers in that during the life of Ambrose. Um, He's a very um, good leader, a good bishop, and a very um, important leader at this time. Let's see. So that was in 373 that he was baptized, ordained, and consecrated as bishop. Um, he, comes to, he comes in charge during the time of Theodosius. Theodosius is the Roman emperor, emperor that makes Christianity the, the, legal, the religion of the Roman Empire. So he is um, coming to the stage at this time. He becomes an eloquent, eloquent preacher, and it's under his teaching and preaching that an unbelieving Augustine comes to faith. So this is, Ambrose was not only gifted in um, administration, as far as being a, a governor and a bishop, but he was really a gifted teacher, and he was a very eloquent teacher at that. So the people would actually travel to come see him teach and preach. He was that skilled as an orator, someone that gives messages and speaks in public. Uh, so he was so gifted in that that people would come to see him. It kind of reminds me of uh, Whitfield. So if you think about, if you know much about George Whitfield, who was the uh, uh, missionary to the colonies here in the United before the United States, but in the colonies, um, and people were flocking to see him. Um, many people came to faith because of that. But one person that came to see him and was so amazed by him was Benjamin Franklin, and Benjamin Franklin, the noted deist, not a Christian. Um, kind of outlined the message that Whitfield had and um, kind of talked about how amazing of a speaker he was and how his voice carried so far. So I, this is reminiscent of that, that people are coming from afar to see how amazing Ambrose is as a preacher. And he was faithful to preach God's word, and um, Augustine was saved because of that. And because of that, we have a great theology passed down from, from Augustine as well. So just thinking about the faithfulness of him to preach God's word is important. Um, not only that, did he was he an effective preacher, things that were affecting his area of the time, there was kind of a neo-paganism that was happening. That's people trying to reintroduce the Roman uh, pagan religi- religions of the time. So he opposed that. But the people that were most impacted by that were the higher classes in, Ro- in, in Milan, so he's preaching against those that are probably the ones that are supporting him the best. But he was unmoved in his um, convictions. So he, he pre- preached against that. He also preached against Arianism. Um, initially, I've mentioned this, as the Arians were uh, condemned by the Roman Empire, they spread north and sent missionaries outside the, the borders of the Roman Empire uh, where they were not condemned. So the barbarians 
did receive some element of Christianity, yet it was Arianism. So they um, became, as they started um, influencing themselves, pressing down south into the Roman Empire, um, the Arians um, were very influential, and this happened in Milan. So he preached against Arianism. Even the local ruling empress of the time, her name was Justina, was an Arian. She requested a temple be built um, in honor of Ari- or t- for a temple built for Arianism, um, and Ambrose refused that. He was staunch in doing that, even though it was not necessarily in, for his uh, political expediency. Some theological things he emphasized. He emphasized the idea of original sin. Um, Augustine's going to take this to the next level. Um, but this is what he says in a prayer. O God, who looked down on us when we had fallen down into death and resolved to redeem us by the advent of your only begotten Son. So he understood the reality that sin in us causes death. And then the second main point of his theology was that because sin causes death for humans, we need something. We need grace. We need God's grace. So he emphasized the grace that's available through Christ as his second main emphasis theologically. Um, So I mentioned that he kind of ostracized himself to some of the elite people. Um, He was also concerned for the poor. Already quickly, the churches started having some riches. They started having um, gold and ornate things in the church buildings. And he called for the melting down of the church's gold in order to help some refugees that had um, been brought into the city because of the barbarians coming from the north. He said it is better to preserve for the Lord's souls rather than gold. So he was he definitely um, was concerned for others and the poor. He spoke out against the atrocities by the emperor. One example of that was in Thessalonica. There was a rebellion against um, the empire there, and Ambrose had a pretty major um, influence with Theodosius at the time, Theodosius, and he asked Theodosius not to um, provide an extreme response to that rebellion, but he stressed um, that he would use restraint. Um, Theodosius didn't listen. He slaughtered 7,000 people who were responsible for that uprising, and on some level he was probably thinking he was doing the right thing to protect his empire, yet Ambrose wasn't afraid to speak out against him. So Theodosius comes to Milan, he wants to attend church, but Ambrose refused him. And he says, stop, a man such as you, stained with sin, whose hands are bathed in blood of injustice, is unworthy until he repents to enter this holy place and to partake of communion. And he repented. He came to to agree with Ambrose, and eventually as Theodosius is dying, he calls Ambrose to his side, um, to pray with him and to administer communion. Ambrose, Ambrose dies in three, on Easter Day on th- in 397. He left a legacy of an able church leader, hymn writer, preacher, and influencer of culture. He was a gifted uh, liturgist. He was very uh, concerned with orderly worship, with readings, music, and teaching. And not only was it his teaching and his preaching and his eloquence that affected Augustine, but it was also the songs that they were singing that were true. Um, He sang several of the things that he had. This is what he thought about singing. He said, in singing, he said, thus 
are all become teachers who were scarcely able to be disciples. So as you're singing, especially God, singing God's truth, you're teaching to one another. One of his hymns was called Come Holy Spirit. Here's some lyrics from it. Come Holy Spirit, whoever one reigneth with Father and with Son, unsubstantial, co-eternal, while unending ages run, evermore and evermore. You hear the, you hear the, the Trinitarian language in that about the Holy Spirit. Um, so just really some depth to what he's uh, teaching his congregation. It's very important what he's doing. Like I said, he dies in 397. So this is interesting. Ambrose kind of has this, he's opposing things done by the state as a bishop and a governor, right? But he's opposing the emperor in some ways, yet he doesn't ever get exiled. He doesn't lose his post. So we're seeing kind of this transition here that in the West, in the Western part of the Roman Empire, the church has a lot of prominence. And it's very, it's very influential in culture at the time. So think about that. Start thinking, okay, so I know that this church in the West becomes the Roman Catholic Church um, and how it becomes the dominant force of this part of Europe, okay? Um, so we see that in the West. We're going to see that a little bit differently when we talk about uh, Chrysostom in the East. But let's talk about somebody that's in the middle next. That's our third character, and that's Jerome. So Jerome lived from 347 to 420 A.D. He was born in Dalmatia, which no doubt is where Dalmatians came from. I mean, that was not part of my research, but I'm sure, there's, I'm sure even then Jerome saw spotted dogs all over the place. He was born of a wealthy, prominent family. Um, he's not a preacher. He's not a bishop. He's a scholar. That's what his main role is in church history. He was educated in Rome. He was well-versed in writing, reading, and speaking Latin, Greek, and Hebrew. Okay? It was very uncommon for anyone to learn Hebrew. So Greek is the spoken word in the eastern part of the empire. Um, Latin is the spoken word in the western part of the empire. You start thinking about, you start having divisions in language, it's, it's, it's hard to keep a, uh, a, an empire together. So it's very uncommon for anybody, though, to learn Hebrew. Um, Augustine himself never even learned Hebrew. Um, Jerome had one fascination, well, one major fascination with life, and that was he loved books. Um, I heard somebody say this week, too, that if you go to seminary, when you graduate from seminary, you're supposed to have 1,500 books. Um, which seems enormous, but Jerome would probably agree with that because he had an exhaustive library that was one of the greatest in the world, actually. So he loved books. One of the things that he loved in books, though, were the classics, um, the pagan classics of Greek and Roman mythology, and really they served as an idol for him. Oftentimes he would fast, do things spiritually in order to allow himself to read more of his classic works. I know you guys have that problem too. You just want to go read some Cicero and some, uh, whatever, Homer, I don't know. <laughs> Thucydides, I don't know. I'm just going to throw out random people. Um, but he loved these books. Um, but as he leaves Rome, he decides it's too much for him to be in Rome, so he leaves to, pers to pursue a life of more solitude than he has. So he's kind of going to become a monk, but he doesn't want to be as extreme as some of those monks 
that uh, like go into the desert and stand on a pole and preach, or the monks that just kind of live off by themselves in quiet silence. Uh, he's going to live a, a kind of a, a, a middle way uh, type of monkhood. Um, but he had an inward struggle, for sure, of reading secular works and God's word. That was really his tension. One thing he also loved was Rome, and he desired to see Rome raised to prominence um, at the height of its power. He died in 420. 410 is the date that the Roman Empire, the Rome itself is sacked and um, overrun by the Goths. So he, even in his lifetime, he was aware that Rome had fallen. Um, his greatest accomplishment, it's one thing, is that he translates the Bible into Latin. We call this the Latin Vulgate. It's very important. This has been a very important study for me, just to think about. Um, okay, so I'm an evangelical Protestant. I go to this church, right? Um, so I've always held a negative view of the Latin Vulgate because it's the Latin Bible. For those of you who don't know, the Latin Bible is what the Roman Catholic Church used for millennia, two millennia, um, 1,500 years or so as its primary source. So I'm thinking, this, there's got to be something really bad. And, you know, it's probably not the best translation. He actually give credit to Jerome for a couple things. One, he, the scriptures weren't in Latin. People spoke Latin. He, he's a reformer, sola scriptura, right? Get it into the language of the people. Um, great mystery here, though. Somehow, the church adopts this as the only scripture, and it doesn't want people to translate the Latin Vulgate into the language of the people. Yet its sole purpose at the beginning was to be translated into the language that people could read and understand. So somewhere in the uh, deception uh, what's the right word, I don't know, of the fact that this was done for the right reasons, it got cloaked in tradition and prevented people from knowing God's word. It's really kind of odd to think about. So I've always hold, held the Latin Vulgate as a negative in my view, but there were some positives to it. Okay, so also Jerome not only translated, he, since he knew Hebrew, he took, he translated the Bible from Hebrew into Latin. He didn't take, previous attempts to do that were taking the Greek Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, and translating it into Latin. But he took it from the original source. Another Reformation Renaissance idea, uh, the Latin term is ad fontes, it means from the sources. So Jerome is actually going back to the original source. Um, that's more than other people. He actually was opposed by Augustine for doing that. Augustine held the Greek Septuagint to a really high standard. Um, there's a belief in some sectors of church history that the Greek Septuagint, which is the Greek um, translation of the Old Testament from the Hebrew manuscripts, that that was inspired. It's not inspired. Um, really done well. Um, we have to agree to that. Um, but that, the idea that, that they held the Greek Septuagint almost on par or greater than the Hebrew writings. So some opposition was um, created with Jerome doing that. And where am I? Uh, let's see. Um, the, the translation that he did for the Old Testament included the 39 books of the Old Testament that we have today. He did not include those Old Testament apocryphal books that are included in the Catholic Bible. Jerome opposed those. So his Old Testament 
uh, translation from Hebrew into Latin looks like ours. Those books were already out there, and he was opposed to those, just so you know. Um, and also his Bible included our current New Testament, and the church had already recognized these as having authority. Um, he wrote commentaries as well. These were read by others, including Augustine. Those two did not always agree on all things, yet they were contemporaries. Um, and like I said, Augustine was opposed to him translating the Greek Septuagint, or not using the Greek Septuagint to translate into Latin. He was a monk. Um, he also believed in things that we find untrue. He believed in the he wrote a book called The Perpetual Virginity of the Blessed Mary. This kind of held the view that Mary remained a virgin for the rest of her life, even though she had other children. Um, this view was already held in much of the church, um, but this inspired um, worship of Mary. So, so great job on the Vulgate, we'll give you that. Bad job on this, Jerome. Um, he also promoted celibacy as a better way of life. So if you were to rank how to live your life, celibacy was 10, being a widow was 9, and a variety of other things. Number two on the list was being married. He thought it was a bad thing. So he, didn't, he helped lead um, the fight, I guess, for uh, those in the priesthood to be celibate, uh, to not be married. Um, he, interestingly enough, also struggled with lust throughout his whole life, um, and because he did that, he punished himself bodily. Um, he also believed, and this is the strangest fact about him, he also believed that since he had been washed by Christ, there was no reason for him to wash again. So he didn't get clean. So, <laughs> might be the reason why he didn't have a wife. It might have been more practical. Um... Um, he also was supported in his education by rich widows, where he lived comfortably and studied. So it wasn't like he was living this life of um, complete separation from comforts of the world. So an interesting character nonetheless. But I think what, we, what I want to pass down to you from Jerome is his uh, desire to see the scriptures written in a language that people can understand. Um, we're still talking about a time in history where... Most people are not learned, probably are not able to read, uh, but this way at least somebody's able to communicate and read to others uh, the scriptures in Latin, and that's what they were speaking at the time. So I hold up Jerome to you, warts and all. So as you can tell, these guys are not perfect, right? Um, and I hope I'm stressing that enough. The next one is John Chrysostom. Oh, I said it right. Yes. Um, who lived from 349 to 407. He is most famous for being the Bishop of Constantinople. He was born in Antioch. Um, so Antioch, we kind of keep referencing Antioch and Alexandria. Um, he was born there. He was raised by his Christian mother, um, who was widowed um, as uh, John was young. He was converted while being taught by one of the great Cappadocians that we talked about last week, Basil. And the name Chrysostom means golden mouth. So what do we know about him because of that? He was an unusually gifted, at a young age, speaker and orator. 
uh, the secular people of the day wanted him to follow them. So those that were practicing oratory or rhetoric wanted him to be part of them. But his mother would not allow them to train him. And the famous uh, rhetorician named Libanius said the following about his mother. What women these Christians have. And the, one of my, one of my uh, key sources says he really should have said what Christians these women are. Um, worried about the protection of their children. And um, so he was not swayed to go into the secular world of uh, oratory. He was a great preacher. The 13th century theologian Thomas Aquinas said that he would rather possess the homilies of Chrysostom than be the master of Paris. So his writings and his eloquence with the word was um, uncomparable. Spurgeon, however, critiques him for not emphasizing grace and justification by faith enough. And he says this about him. There's enough of solid truth and brilliant utterance in his homilies to justify his title, Golden Mouth. But still, all is not gold which fell upon his lips. So it's not perfect, not, not, uh, doesn't, hasn't come to, as far in understanding of theology as other people have in the future. He preached against the wealth of the people of Constantinople um, when there was a great need for orphans and widows to be cared for. He preached against that. He was a great expositor. Um, history has recognized him as a great um, expositor of Scripture. Even Calvin himself appreciated his work, and he compares him to Augustine and prefers him. He felt that Augustine was too focused on the allegorical meaning of Scripture, so trying to so reading the scripture and trying to find what's mysterious in it, uh, where Chrysostom in his Alexandrian training was more concerned about getting to what the meaning of the text is. Um, I think we would find that more appropriate than trying to find some hidden meaning. We believe God's word is clear, and Chrysostom would be uh, an expositor of that. One of the other historians I read said, it's odd that we give uh, Chrysostom such credit for being an expositor and his understanding of scripture, but Augustine is noted for his great theology. It's almost like they're in uh, competing contrast to each other, but we um, owe a great debt to him anyway. He wrote a book called On the Priesthood, which was influential. Um, he actually wrote it before he became a priest, and he identified that there's two things that are central for the priest. He's the pastor of the time, and the two emphases are preaching and people. That's the two things you have to deal with, preaching and people. And that seems right. Those are the main things that a pastor is responsible for. And so that was an influential book and is still read today along with his homilies. Yet he, his faithfulness in preaching got him in trouble, especially with the wealthy. Uh, the, the present ruler of his time exiled him, um, never came back, not like Athanasius where he Kept coming back and forth, back and forth. No, he was exiled, and he continued uh, to minister to the church by writing. Um, so the rulers of the day decided, hey, you have too much influence. Um, you, you're too accessible with your writing. We're going to exile you even further away. And in the process of him being exiled further away, he caught a fever and died. And he, pulled, he had the, uh, the men that were taking him um, didn't seem to care that he was about to die, yet he convinced them to pull over, and he went to a local church and had communion and died. 
Um, so what we need to look at here, as he died, he said, he, his final words were, in all things, glory to God, amen. So in all things, being exiled away from your church um, and suffering because of it, he gave praise to God and asked that he be glorified. Um, so let's think about, so Christosom pretty much is, there's a whole political intrigue about his role with the state. But his role with the state was subversive in the sense that he never really agreed with them and was always challenging them to use their riches to help uh, locals. So he has that, he's doing it, and he gets undermined and kicked out. Um, compared to Ambrose, who has influence and is talking to the emperor, and the emperor repents. Okay, so we see this growing power in the West. We see this softening of the church's um, ability to communicate in the East. And what we're going to see is the Roman Empire is done, 410, Rome falls. Shortly thereafter, the entire empire is gone. Empire rises up in the East. It's the Byzantine Empire, and it reigns for another thousand years. And the church is almost, is in the West, the church is the powerful source of the West, of, of Europe. In the East, there's the empire, and the church is underneath the empire. So we see this Eastern-Western uh, difference, different view of the church and its influence in the state. Um, eventually, that's going to lead to the Eastern and Western church being completely broken apart. There's going to be a schism where it separates those two. So you're going to have the Eastern Orthodox church and then the Roman Catholic church in the West. We're not there yet. That's another 500 years from now. Maybe we'll get to that in 500 years. We'll see. So I hope that introducing these characters to you will encourage you. I would encourage you to look at Chrysostom's homilies. I think you'll find that um, he was insightful and that his words still reign true today. I would encourage you to listen to that sermon about Athanasius. And um, I think we can learn much from these men. And I think we can also get a greater understanding of how God has protected his word throughout history in the life of Jerome. Um, Next week, I'm going to spend an entire week on Augustine. Um, I thought I was going to talk about Augustine today, but that is not going to happen. No, I didn't really plan for that, but I was thinking all along, it's like, I'll just talk about all these guys at one time. There's no way. He's such a monumental figure in the church that we're going to spend an entire week on him. Okay? Let's pray, and I'll do some announcements. Heavenly Father, we praise you for your goodness and your faithfulness to us. Lord, uh, I praise you, Lord, that we can see that you use uh, men and women, Lord, to further your kingdom. So, Lord, I pray that would inspire us today. Lord, help us to be faithful. Help us, Lord, to be um, used by you in order to bring um, more people into your kingdom. Lord, help us understand that. Lord, I pray that as we go to the worship service, Lord, that we would worship you with our minds engaged and our hearts aflamed. Lord, may um, we be receptive to what your word would have us learn today. Lord, I praise you for um, the opportunity to be together. May you bless our time as we uh, fellowship together as well. In Christ's name we pray, amen.